The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. And this is the Pat Kenny Show with Anton in for Pat with the air supply now dwindling. Hope has dwindled with it in relation to the Titan submersible. A Canadian aircraft searching for the sub in the Atlantic Ocean has been detecting intermittent banging noises from the vicinity of its last known location. But according to the US Coast Guard, the origin of those sounds and the the creation of those sounds is unclear. To fill us in the detail, I'm joined on the line by former NATO and Naval Commander Dr. Chris Parry. Good morning, Chris. Hello, Anton. Chris, the, the search uh, as it now uh, has progressed to the point we are we are at sitting at today, it, it, will they have completed their total search area or is there still more to be searched? No, Anton, there's a vast area to search. Um, there are two aspects to this. One is the area you have to search. The other is the actual detail that you find on the bottom. Uh, what, what nobody's saying is that you might be able to get sort of sonar traces of the bottom, but you can't actually classify every object that you find. You have to go around one by one and make sure that you have a good look at it. And the only way you can do that is with a side scan sonar. Uh, and it's a matter of judgment. Um, but I think we have to be realistic. Uh, I think we're reaching the, the end of, of this particular uh, rescue mission and we'll soon be into recovery mission. We've heard that there is equipment en route, recovery and, and robot equipment. Would that not indicate that there are those who still have some optimism for it as a rescue mission? Well, I think uh, what would have been frustrating if they'd have found uh, Titan and not had the equipment there to bring it up. So I think what they're doing, and I think it has arrived now, is uh, in particular an American system, which can go down to 20,000 feet, which is you know a, a good 6,000 feet beyond where the seabed exists at the moment. It, it consists of a very clever uh, underwater uh, vehicle that can sort of provide sonar, but also grabbers and all sorts of other tools. Uh, but that's coupled with a deep sea um, salvage uh, equipment, um, basically a winch, uh, a crane and, and a long cable that could actually drag the submersible up if they found it. And I think the thinking is that they had to get the stuff there just in case they found Titan, because what you wouldn't have wanted is to find it and not have the kit on station. Um, so that's what they've done. They've got all the equipment there, I think, by now that they would need if they find it. But of course, uh, they've run out of time. And I think it's going to be a long time before they find this uh, this particular target. Why do you believe it'll take so long? Well, because simply because the, the, the area that has to be covered, the fact that it's four kilometers down uh, and the nature of the seabed which is alternately hills and canyons you've got a lot of debris particularly in the vicinity of titanic uh, and a lot of what we call false echoes um, so the analysis of that is going to be really extensive uh, i think they went off in a bit of a wild goose chase over the last couple of days we spoke yesterday anton you know that this banging sound it was 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 totally unlikely to have been from uh, Titan. You've got a lot of noise in the water, mechanical noise from all sorts of things. Uh, and why would you bang on the side of a carbon fibre hull which you don't want to break? You know, it, it was never, never, ever a, a valid sort of uh, thing to go off on. Um, I think they were just trying to give people hope and maintain morale, to tell you the truth. Although in that instance, there has been examples previously where submarines have um, become stranded on the bottom and the crew have hammered on the side of the hull to indicate to others in the area that they are there and that they are alive. So is that not the precedent that people are referring to? 
Yeah, but I think we have to remember that it's a it's a carbon fiber hull. It's not a metal one, so you're not getting a lot of resonance through the water. Uh, and the other thing is, you don't want to weaken it when there's sort of uh, two tons of uh, pressure per square inch on the on the on the hull. So uh, I think it's highly unlikely that you'll hear any banging. It would be more like a stud if you were doing it. And um, I must say, I'm very skeptical. I've, I've done that sort of analysis on these sonar boys myself. And frankly, you can tell when it's mechanical rather than a, you know, a, a, what I would call a, a, a sort of locally manufactured noise. I assume if it is a locally manufactured noise, there would be or it'd be a fair assumption that there would be a pattern to it that you would set up and say, we will do this every 30 minutes to make clear that it's deliberate and considered. Is there any sense that that's what's evidenced in, in what the sonar is picking up? No, I don't think so. I mean, you, you, what you're not seeing is the ones you're missing uh, because you don't hear every sort of uh, cycle. It may well be. I, I mean, the other thing is uh, when you're involved in search and rescue, you desperately want to find people and you get into what is known psychologically as optimism bias. Uh, and you start to see things that really aren't there. Uh, and I'm afraid to say the fact they've had to send it off for analysis, for example, uh, tells me that it's not, not obvious that this is somebody banging on the side of Titan. What, if anything, can the crew of Titan do to stretch the reserves that they currently have? Anton, if I'm honest, I think they're out of, out of air now. Um, you know, 96 hours is always the absolute extreme limit. If they're still alive now, what they have to do is lower their metabolism as much as possible, which means, you know, sleep as much as you can. Uh, uh, obviously, don't eat. You have to drink to stay alive. Um, they're probably in darkness, uh, they're lying on top of each other. So this is a really nasty environment right now, bodily functions, all that sort of thing. You've just got to reduce your activity to an absolute minimum. Uh, problem is, of course, they're probably freezing cold. Um, so they're trying to generate heat, that's taking up oxygen. You don't know whether carbon's being released from uh, the atmosphere down there by anything else. Uh, I have to say, you know, the, the odds, are, odds in favour of them surviving are in vanishingly small. Do you know at what point the rescue teams are likely to give up on their optimism and say it has now become a recovery mission? Is there a deadline that they will have set? No, they won't. They, they will say, look, um, we'll try and continue to look for these people. Uh, but my sense is, Anton, after a week, they will say, look, it, it is not possible for these people to have survived. There's just not enough air in the system. And I'm afraid we're going to have to scale back this and, ha and basically do routine, routine uh, sort of tr trawls up and down the seabed with one or two of the ships that are there at the moment just to see if they can locate and possibly recover it later. What does it mean, do you think, Chris, for this form of tourism? Because surely it raises questions about safety. It raises questions about the appropriateness of whether or not people should be taking tourist trips to what is, in essence, a mass gravesite, because that's what the Titanic is. Will this bring about significant change, do you think? Well, I, I sincerely hope so. I mean, what we've seen in this incident is how unregulated and basically cowboy um, this sector is. I mean, uh, it's almost the equivalent of going down to your garden shed, making something and saying to people, look, I'll take you down for a very large fee. Trust me. But by the way, sign this piece of paper saying I'm not responsible for any injury or death. I mean, <laughs> I mean it's a remarkable situation. So I think you'll find the international community will come together and say, well, hang on, why wasn't the flag state of the uh, ship that launched this vehicle uh, actually adhering to any safety guidelines in this respect? I think what's more worrying in this case, Anton, 
is that this company and this particular vehicle had a very checkered safety past in the last five years. Um, people have complained about various failures on it. Uh, its hull has always been suspect. Uh, and I think somebody challenged uh, a couple of days ago the fact that every time it's come up, it, its hull has not been non-destructively tested, which is something you always do with carbon fiber to make sure there are no distortions or cracks in the system that will expose you to problems when you're down in the deep ocean. So there's a lot of questions to be answered about both the company uh, and also the whole sector in many ways. This this has been a sort of unregulated area. And it, on the business of tourism, um, people take their life in their hands when they do this. Uh, I'm not sure that the passengers in this were really appreciative of the risks involved. In situations like this, in extreme conditions, particularly in the deep ocean, it's rather like space, for it to be successful, for it to be safe, everything has to go right every time. And I'm afraid to say, I don't think those risks were calibrated or indeed mitigated in this case. What about the norms in terms of safety for um, voyages like this? Because in, in most industries, you would have a series of standard fail-safes. If you look at aviation, you have the components on which the aircraft rely tend to be there in triplicate. Um, a lot of the questions that came in after you and I spoke yesterday were things like, why was there not a second vessel? Why was there not uh, beacons? Why were there not hardwired communications? Is there no standard to what the basic level of safety should be for this kind of activity? Activity. No, not at all. And in fact, you know, one of the things that a number of things I would like to ask the company, one was, you know, why did it take eight hours for you to raise the alarm? I think I know the answer to that. Things have gone wrong in the past and they've assumed that they've continued to their, with their mission and were expecting them to come up again after after eight hours. Secondly, where where is the industry standard for this sort of uh, vehicle and these sorts of operations? doesn't exist. Uh, and thirdly, uh, what, how is the flag state of the vessel that's deploying uh, these uh, underwater vehicles actually covering the risks uh, and providing assurance along the lines your, your, your listeners have been saying? I'm afraid the, the one good thing that will come out of this is I think the sector will be uh, stomped all over by the regulators and international legal people. Well, who is the ultimate regulator uh, in relation to this or any other expedition? It is, is it the state where the ship is flagged? Is it whoever has jurisdiction? Because I assume once you get that far off the US coast, it isn't the US who, who um, own the water. No, no. I mean, in territorial waters out to 12 miles, uh, the, the, flags, the coastal state has jurisdiction. Uh, but as far as I'm concerned, if I'm a lawyer looking at international law, it's, I think, the, the Polar Prince, uh, which is a Canadian vessel, is subject to the law of Canada and also international maritime law in relation to the activities that it gets up to on the high seas. You mentioned earlier on the issue of testing the hull on, on when it had come up from previous um, dives. The technology used, the, the fact that it's constructed from carbon fibre, is that a relatively innovative material in relation to submariners? Yes, it is. I mean, uh, but but on the other hand, if you're going to go deep, you can only use carbon fibre. You can't use steel uh, that deep, which is why nuclear submarines can't go that deep. Um, you've got big sort of engineering and hulls and things like that. So it has to be uh, carbon fibre if you want that sort of thing. Um, I mean, 
where I have a problem again with the company is if you look on its website, it actually says, you know, we're actually pretty intolerant of having to explain ourselves to outside authorities, which by implication is regulators or people actually questioning us, because we think that gets in the way of innovation and entrepreneurship. Well, <laughs> yeah, and um, you know that's that's where safety comes in. So they had a pretty cavalier attitude to this. Uh, and uh, if you also look on their website, they've got videos saying, "Well, actually, you know, we we don't get inspiration from fifty-year-old white guys." They actually say that, um, and I would put it to them. Actually, those fifty-year-old white guys might have actually said to you at one stage, "You need to be more careful here, and you need to put some belt and braces into your technology." As the rescue mission continues, who, on whom does it fall to make the call that it's over? Uh, it'll be down to the, um, the, the Rear Admiral in the Coast Guard of the uh, Coast Guard District based in Boston. Uh, he's coordinating this. He'll take advice, I think. Um, in fact, I think the captain who works for him uh, was actually asked that question yesterday in the press conference. And he said there will come a time to make that decision, but it's not yet. And I, and I agree with that. I think you've got to give it a decent sort of period of time afterwards. Uh, uh, but there comes a point where you say, look, we know the, the capacity of these, uh, uh, these oxygen cylinders. We know what air they had. It is inconceivable uh, that they would still be alive. Chris, thank you as ever for your time. That's Dr. Chris Parry, former NATO and Naval Commander. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9 a.m on News Talk.